so well right at the moment, but I'll see what I can do. Here, a few notes from my sickbed in the hopes of getting this podcast moving. I suppose what's immediately attractive about empathy, to me anyway, is that it is necessarily demonstrative. In order to feel empathy, there must be an object for that empathy. That object is, inversely, also the source of that empathy. So empathy describes a kind of circuit or self-contained emotional loop. Empathy is the capacity to recognize emotions that are being experienced by someone else. It's akin to identity, as in identifying with someone else, or, well, identifying with how they feel, although it implies something other than a direct correspondence. When you identify with someone, you put yourself in their place, see within them what is also already in you. Identity always begins with you, but empathy is the other way around. The starting point is always someone else. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Or, and a bit better, it's the ability to feel the feelings of another. But these feelings, feeling the way someone else does, always happens at one measure of removal. These aren't your feelings in the first place, although you will yourself to adopt them as your own. And it seems to me that empathy is then a useful cipher for thinking about the mechanics of how feelings get translated, communicated in pop songs, for instance. Of course, the singer doesn't really feel blue at all, but rather they portray, or betray, a kind of sympathy towards feeling blue. And that is, of course, a sympathy at a distance, an equation that doesn't actually equate, i.e. empathy. Doctor, my eyes. 
Variety's Farmer John Sausages brings you John Corneal asking the musical question, Do you know how it feels to be lonesome? Take 21. Do you know how it feels to be lonesome when there's just no one left who
surprised and the oceans flowed through your blue-gray eyes and I stood and gazed through hot summer days so tell me how do you feel interior small classroom somewhere in Oxford the English word empathy was coined in 1909 by psychologist Edward B. Titchener in an attempt to translate the curious German word Einfühlung. The English has Greek roots in empatheia, meaning physical affection, passion, partiality. Completing the, could we say, empathetic linguistic loop, the English empathy is translated back into German as empathy, with IE at the end rather than Y. The original German term, Einfühlung, means roughly feeling into. The idea was already current in late 18th and 19th century German Romantic philosophy, with writers describing the ability to feel into a work of art, or feel into nature. It described an ideal of projecting our own consciousness into another object in order to understand what it feels like to be the other. Robert Vischer was the first to precisely use the term in his works on aesthetics and form. By the end of the 19th century, Theodore Lips examined empathy more thoroughly and suggested that it was not only relevant to aesthetics, but should command a central position in the social sciences generally. Empathy is not only useful in contemplation of aesthetic objects, but is essential to our ability to engage with and identify other minds, to see beyond ourself. When I dream of you the whole night through, and I don't even shut my eyes, because what I see is pure heaven to me. So tell me, are you for real? that you find in the windmills of your mind keys that jingle in your pocket words that jangle in your head why did summer go so quickly was it something that you said lovers walk along the shore and leave their footprints in the sand is the sound of distant drumming just the fingers of your hand pictures hanging in a hallway and the fragment of a song half remembered names and faces but to whom do they belong 
When you knew that it was over, you were suddenly aware that the autumn leaves were turning to the color of her hair. A circle in a spiral, a wheel within a wheel, never ending or beginning on an ever spinning reel. As the images unwind, like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind. Occasionally a human being saw my light rushed in got singed, got scared, rushed out, called fire, or it happened that he tried to subdue it, or it happened he tried to extinguish it, never did a friend enjoy it the way it was. So I learned to turn it low, Turn it out when I meet a stranger out of courtesy. I turn on a soft pink light, which is found modest, even charming. It is a protection against wear and test. Do it till I broke through it Never was attached to it To call it 
emotional empathy is rooted in feeling what another is feeling and responding in place with appropriate emotion. So feeling sad in support of someone else's hardship, for example. Cognitive empathy is something a bit more sterile. It suggests merely the drive to identify or recognise someone else's emotional state. However, cognitive empathy is often equated with the theory of mind, which is the fundamental capacity to identify others as creatures of mind who feel feelings distinct from your own. Being unable to feel this kind of empathy can have dire consequences. Then again, what kind of spider knows about arachnophobia? Are the stars out? 
behind the door A voice still calls Take the key Open the door Guess who Hallucination of 52 Lachasse Street, London West 2, for her son, Stan, now serving in the Lebanon. We have a number about something everybody needs. Friends. Scream! 
Exterior, Austin, Texas, 1998. I'm your brain when you do something and you see someone else do the same thing in response. I sneeze and you reply in kind. A small electrical charge lights up in my brain. But not just that. These strange neurons fire the same when we observe someone else performing an action as when we perform the action directly. There seems to be a hardwired electrical impulse that would partly explain why we feel like sneezing when someone else's sneeze. Or the impossibility of yelling when everyone else around you is speaking in whispers. These all sound like empathetic situations to me. Insects are all around us. They produce many sounds at many frequencies and volume levels. We are so accustomed to hearing insect sounds that we seldom listen to them. Crickets produce their chirps by rubbing their wings together. Rough spots on the cricket's wings produce the chirping vibrations which we hear. The cricket is highly sensitive to temperature. In fact, we can tell the temperature by crickets. Count the number of chirps in 15 seconds and add 40. The result is very close to the temperature on the Fahrenheit thermometer. Listen. That cricket was chirping at 76 degrees Fahrenheit.
personal life, like an anger disease, spreading pain and misery all across the planet. My personal life, like the hatred towards me I inspire in everyone I come in contact with. My personal life, like a lesson in how to fuck over everybody through dishonesty, indecision, and poor planning. My personal life, like perfect stupidity, like purgatory, like pure poverty, like can I borrow more money from the few who will still talk to me. My personal life, semi-insane, semi-homeless, and no, I don't have a number I can be reached at. And besides, you don't really want to talk to me anyway. My personal life, my pathetic personal life, crying, sniveling, stupid, 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 why do I do these things, why do I behave so always, so badly, when will I be punished, how come no one stays mad, why doesn't anyone see me for the shit I am, why is everyone so forgiving? When people are so beautiful, I could almost feel beautiful myself. At the ashram two days ago, a woman gave me a rose, picked before it could bloom, and that's the tragedy, the human tragedy, that most of us die before we attain anything real, and my personal life drives this sad pseudo-reality home and cries, no hope, no hope, no hope, and yes, it's a lie, but it's so hard not to believe sometimes. <coughs> I'm in the one-room apartment located in the basement under the Polish National Church. It used to be a club, and then a mental health outpatient clinic. Now I call it home. There's a king-size mattress in the middle of the room where me and the big fat lead singer from Canned Heat finish up an afternoon of incredibly hot sex. Boy, does he have a big one. Joining us for late afternoon tea in a four-way is my old next-door neighbor Jimbo and his wife, who is a chicken. Since I'm the only woman there with hands, I soon find myself fully occupied. I can't help but wonder how Jimbo and his wife had their baby who had been sleeping next to us, but has since fallen onto the floor. She must be able to change forms back and forth. And what about chicken pussy? Is it enticing? I mean, what's the story? Me and the guy from Can Heat climb into a nondescript four-door sedan, drive up the hill and around the sleepy suburban neighborhood. I can't help but notice all the beautiful pine trees that abound. Through their kitchen windows, making dinner for their husbands who should be returning from work just around this time. I start to feel cheap. Is this the fulfillment of a fantasy hoped for? Interior Phil Spector's dining room, Santa Barbara. <laughs> So I was saying to Phil that empathy, so far as music's concerned anyway, might also be a, a method. One song might be 
empathetic towards another without any outright intent to be so. So of course, auto-tune appears on one record and then another and so forth. Two songs with the same bongo drum player or two equally tweaked Hammond B3 organs. But it may easily be more subtle than blunt repetition of a particular instrument or effect. a little differently. Empathy can be structural, from the first to the minus sixth to the fourth, the fifth, and back again to the first. The same shape of candles, or the same type, but with different thoughts expressed, hidden affinities. Through this world, nothing can stop but to cover. And you, you are my girl, and no one can hurt you. Oh no, yes I.
somewhere in an Italy of the imagination. The sea is barely wrinkled, and little waves strike the sandy shore. Mr. Palomar is standing on the shore, looking at a wave. Not that he is lost in contemplation of the waves. He's not lost, because he's quite aware of what he's doing. He wants to look at a wave, and he is looking at it. He is not contemplating, because for contemplation you need the right temperament, the right mood, and the right combination of exterior circumstances. And though Mr. Palomar has nothing against contemplation in principle, none of these three conditions apply to him. Finally, it's not the waves that he means to look at, but just one individual wave. In his desire to avoid vague sensations, he establishes for his every action a limited and precise object. Mr. Palomar sees a wave rise in the distance, grow, approach, change form and colour, fold over itself, break, vanish and flow again. At this point he could convince himself that he has concluded the operation that he set out to achieve, and he could go away. But isolating one wave is not easy separating it from the wave immediately following, which seems to push it and at times overtake it and sweeps it away. And it is no easier to separate that one wave from the preceding wave, which seems to drag it toward the shore, unless it turns against the following wave, as if to arrest it. Then, if you consider the breadth of the wave, parallel to the shore, it is hard to decide where the advancing front extends regularly, and where it is separated and segmented into independent waves, distinguished by their speed, shape, force, direction. In other words, you cannot observe a wave without bearing in mind the complex features that concur in shaping it, and the other, equally complex ones that the wave itself originates. Concentrating the attention on one aspect makes it leap into the foreground and occupy the square. Just as with certain drawings, you have only to close your eyes, and when you open them, the perspective has changed. Now, in the overlapping of crests moving in various directions, the general pattern seems broken down into sections that rise and vanish. In addition, the reflux of every wave also has a power of its own that hinders the oncoming waves. And if you concentrate your attention on these backward thrusts, it seems that the true movement is the one that begins from the shore and goes out to sea. Perhaps the real 
result that Mr. Palomar is about to achieve. To make the waves run in the opposite direction, to overturn time, to perceive the true substance of the world beyond sensory and mental habits. No, he feels a slight dizziness, but it goes no further than that. The stubbornness that drives the waves toward the shore wins the match. In fact, the waves have swelled considerably. Is the wind about to change? It would be disastrous if the image that Mr. Palomar has succeeded painstakingly in putting together were to shatter and be lost. Only, if he manages to bear all the aspects in mind at once, can he begin the second phase of the operation, extending this knowledge to the entire universe. It would suffice not to lose patience, as he soon does. Mr. Palomar goes off along the beach, tense and nervous as when he came, and even more unsure about everything.